2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com. Hello and welcome again to The Last Nighters. We are The Last Nighters, Robert and Daniel. My name is Daniel, and we are going to talk about the Disney Pixar film from 2006 called Cars, uh, because we like to do kids' movies on here, apparently, because, uh, well, you know, there's a lot of messaging going on in, in these uh, movies, and, and kids haven't quite learned enough to really tell the uh, propaganda from the real stuff. Um, things like that, right? Right, Robert? Yeah, it's easily hidden and snuck in, especially in Disney movies. And, uh, you know, if you've got a young toddler or what have you, they're probably super into these kinds of cartoons and princesses, and they'll watch these movies on repeat. And uh, it's good to know what you're programming your kids with. Yeah, so programming, I, I, programming is right, for sure. I, I, I think I would avoid Disney movies, at least most of them, but uh, if nothing else, at least be aware of what yeah, your kids are being exposed to. All right, well said, and and we'll be uh, getting into some of these issues as we analyze this film on this episode of The Last Nighters, which can be found at lastnighters.com slash nine, and we generally start out with a Google description. So here we go, Cars, 2006 sport adventure movie, an hour and 57 minutes, 7.1 on the IMDb, 74% Rotten Tomatoes, and 86% of Google users like it. And the description reads, while traveling to California to race against the King, played by Richard Petty, and Chick Hicks, Michael Keaton, for the Piston Cup Championship, Lightning McQueen, played by Owen Wilson, becomes lost after falling out of his trailer in a run-down town called Radiator Springs. While there, he slowly befriends the town's odd residents, including Sally, Doc Hudson, and Mater, uh, and when it comes time for him to leave, to championship is no longer his top priority. That, that is really awkwardly worded. When it comes time for him to leave, to championship is no longer his top priority. Came out March 14, 2006. Director John Lasseter did very well at the box office, $462.2 million. Um, also, the final performance by Paul Newman and uh, Bonnie Hunt plays Sally and Larry the Cable Guy is Mater. So other than the really awkwardly worded last sentence of the description, do you have any issues with it? Well, it's interesting that they tell almost the entire story right there. There's no not leaving you any kind of surprises left other than maybe the finale of how it ends. But I prefer to think of this movie, you know, um, alternatively, there is a, I don't know if you're familiar with this, Daniel, but there's a, um, I don't know how popular it is, but there is a theory that all these cars, planes, movies take place in a post-apocalyptic world. And I like to think of it as a movie that takes place post, like, maximum overdrive, where all the cars have brutally murdered all the humans. <laughs> what, quite the kids' movie here. <laughs> That's right. So this place technically takes place in the Stephen King-iverse. And, um, yeah, if you look at it that way, it's a much darker, more grim grim movie. Um, of course, you can look at it any way you want, but I, I like to think of it as a, just a weird choice for Disney. <laughs> let's, let's, let's make a movie where all the, the humans have been brutally murdered by the vehicles, and then we'll make a fun, bubbly kids movie about it. All right. Yeah, I, I didn't get that vibe. I got the, you know, what if, 
cars were essentially the humans in this world. Um, but I did notice that this is basically a remake of an 80s classic or maybe a mid-90s classic uh, starring Michael J. Fox called Doc Hollywood. It's essentially the same story um, in regards to the um, Sally, the Sally uh, uh, Carrera Porsche leaving the L.A. and moving to the um, rundown, you know, podunk town. That's what Michael J. Fox does. He's a doctor from L.A. and ends up in some small town and through the course of the movie comes to appreciate the smallness and he ends up staying there so if you want if you, if you don't want to see cars watch doc hollywood basically the same thing yeah or or almost every bill murray movie where uh, the main character is a jerk at the beginning learns to be a nice guy and everybody likes him at the end yeah because that is pretty much what happens here owen wilson plays uh, lightning mcqueen and he's this brash rookie who's got a lot of talent but he's also a showboat and uh really hard to work with and keeps firing people and kind of taking all the credit and, and not being such a nice guy. And he gets humbled a little bit, I guess, throughout this this whole ordeal and comes to appreciate the value of a team, right? I guess that's the kid lesson in this, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I mean, there's some serious telegraphing going on in the first you know, five, ten minutes where where McQueen is like kind of this jerk guy and he kind of snubs his, his team as he's going around in this race. And, of course, his little pit crew, they all quit. So you know... There's going to be, it's kind of like a redemption story coming up through the rest of the movie. And then a, a series of improbable events occurs that really, watching it, I was just like, really, 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 really? Because, you know, it just happens one after the other, the series of improbable events to get him into this little podunk town. But, I mean, I'm not going to really nitpick some kid's movie for being so ridiculous. I mean, we're talking about a movie with, you know, talking cars in it, so... Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> That's for sure. And I just wanted to point out that um, one of the impetus, impeti for this movie was a documentary that the director saw, um, and then he went on a cross-country road trip with his family. And it was called Divided Highways. It's a 1997 PBS documentary, and it was a, uh, highlighting the story of the interstate highway system and how it came to be. And there's a whole host of issues with that that we could certainly get into or, or perhaps on a... Um, uh, a boys' night out version of of our show, where we have guests and talk about other issues related to the movies or anything else that comes up. Um, but the idea in in divided highways that was brought up was that when the interstates went in, a lot of the older roads that towns that ran through the towns uh, got passed by, and so a lot of the towns would basically die as a result because the the highway would bypass them, and then the car traffic traveling much faster speeds and not needing to stop as often, et cetera, uh, would no longer need to go into these towns for services. And so then the, the towns would die off. And so that was sort of the idea behind Radiator Springs being on Route 66. And then Highway 40 comes along and no one has any reason to go into Radiator Springs any longer. Indeed. And um, that was one thing that I had trouble with, like feeling any kind of sympathy for these people. I mean, we can get into your documentary. I didn't see your documentary. But in my mind, you, you live by the road, you die by the road. Your entire business model is set up for this traffic. And then a better road comes along and diverts that traffic. I'm sorry, unless you can have a way to pull in traffic, get out of there. Move. I mean, at one point, the Giuseppe, Italian little dude, like Lightning McQueen, buys some tires from him. And he's like, holy smokes, this is like my first sale in years. How are you staying in business if you're not some mafia front? 
how is any of this place in business? It reminded me of, um, have you seen that uh, documentary or at least YouTube clip or whatever about, oh, it's like there's this town, I forget what it's called. It's like Stone Town or something. That's wrong, but it's about this town in like um, Southern California out in the desert, which is essentially kind of like this anarchist place. It's like Freedom Town or something like that, but it's just out in the middle of nowhere. And nobody lives there except, you know, basically a bunch of hippies living off, like, you know, pension checks or welfare or something like that. But but it just, it's just like, you know, there's no reason for these people to be here, especially if people – these are cars that, you know, want to have businesses and provide services to people, which is great. I'm all about that. These are entrepreneurs. But, I mean, can't they see the writing on the wall? Yeah, apparently not. And that's the other side of, of the equation that a lot of people don't generally understand is that it's a profit and loss system. And you're taking entrepreneurial risk when you're running a business and, and trying to provide services, uh, goods and services to fickle customers, fickle consumers. And it's those who don't satisfy the needs and wants of consumers that end up making losses and eventually going out of business. And to your point regarding Giuseppe, uh, not having sales in years, um, he was clearly making losses this entire time unless he had a big nest egg that he was living off of uh, or he was a mafioso front, as you suggest. Um, yeah, he he was not uh, participating in profits, certainly. Yeah, I mean, part of being an entrepreneur and being a business owner is evaluating risk and, you know, looking for opportunity and being aware of the competitive environment and, you know, realizing that you just got outcompeted by this other road. So either you got to pack up and move or go out of business or, you know, have the improbable series of events that leads to this movie happening, which through no, well, through very little work of their own, they then get revitalized at the end of the movie, spoilers, but only because of this just ridiculous series of events where Lightning McQueen pushes his truck to go, you know, while he's falling asleep and not, not take a break for really no reason other than he wanted to get practice on a, on a circle. I really got to get to this, this, this new track out west for this race because I got to practice because I've never driven on a circle before. Yeah, you just turn left a okay. Just turn left, which uh, Owen was in uh, Zoolander with, with uh, Ben Stiller, and the joke in that was that he couldn't turn left. Uh, the Ben Stiller character, and of course, that's all Owen Wilson does in this one. Right, and then and then he gets off the highway because he thinks you know his truck is going off in the highway, so he follows the highway, or he follows the the truck which he thinks is his truck, and it turns out to not be his truck. But then another series of events happens, and that like, he's getting chased by this cop who just so happens to be backfiring, so he can't stop because he thinks he's getting shot at. Anyway. Then that, that part stood out to me, and I thought that would be an interesting point to discuss, but continue. We could talk about that. But, so he, then he gets like lost, and he can't find his way back to the highway. And I just want to say, there's one road. He's on Route 66, and it intersects with this highway. There's one road. You cannot get lost. But there's a big chunk of this movie where Owen Wilson is like, I don't know how to get back to the highway. And there's like some tourists that come into town and everybody gets psyched about it and they ask Owen Wilson for directions back to the highway. He's like, I have no idea. <laughs> how, how are you a car? And I understand he's a race car or whatever. How are you a car that drives on roads and there's one road going to one place and he's like, I'm, I'm lost. I have no idea. But whatever, you know, you got to have a movie, I guess. Yeah, we'll, I kind of we'll gave him the benefit of the doubt on that one because, you know, because he's a race car, right? He's used to getting taken around places in the back of that uh, John Ratzenberger truck. Yeah, 
yeah, right. So you can give him the benefit of the doubt there, but I still thought it. I thought it, I thought it was quite ridiculous. But yeah, he is kind of like this big city guy that gets ferried around and treated like whatever. But still, it turns into him into a complete idiot if he can't follow one road. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But you know, I, I think that's. Um, and we get back to the cop thing in a minute. But when when we we have two kids and uh, we're trying to not do everything for them because we don't want them to not learn how to do stuff and not experience things. And if if somebody enables them and does everything for them and they never have to experience how to do it, then they'll never figure it out, right? So yeah. I feel like that's what happened with uh, with the Owen Wilson character in this. And by the way, they call him um, Lightning the Queen uh, because they think that he's he's a queen and that the Richard Petty character, they call him the king. They call him uh, King uh, with the dinos on him because they think it's something to do with royalty and princesses and whatnot. But I, I, I try to tell him he was Lightning McQueen. It's his name. It's not that he is a queen. But anyway, sharing the okay. stories of I'm the kids. I'm not going to make any judgments about the intelligence of your kids. That's fine. What did you want to talk about with the uh, the cop? So the cop thing was interesting because a lot of people don't see it this way, but but I think you and I would agree that as soon as they flick on the lights to turn you, to have you pull over, they are threatening you. That if you don't pull over, they're going to escalate the situation and and up to and including shooting you. And uh, him backfiring, Lightning McQueen thought that was happening to him, and I, I think he had every reason to try to get away. You know, I, I completely agree. In fact, there's a point where once he starts hearing backfiring, he starts driving erratically. And he says to himself, serpentine, serpentine, because that's the way you'd, you're supposed to move when you're being shot at. So he's, he's acting completely rationally. But, of course, the cop thinks he's, oh, he's a crazy person. Got to get him. Yeah, he's drunk or something, was, right? Yeah, I thought that was all entirely accurate with reality. That was probably the most realistic scene in the movie. Except that the cop didn't end up murdering McQueen. Right, just in, in, enslaving him. <laughs> right, just enslaving him, correct. Yeah, throwing him in a cage. And and then they have this uh, kangaroo court thing, which I don't know how the court proceedings you know typically work, but the judge Doc Hudson let him go, and then uh, Carrera is like, no, no, no. But wasn't the decision already like announced? So like, didn't they kind of go back on the whole due process thing there? Well, I just like how there's a total of like ten people in this town, and three of them are bureaucratic like government people. One's the cop, one's the judge, and one's the lawyer. And then there's Mater, who I guess also kind of counts because he runs the impound lot. He's like the bailiff. Basically the jail. Yeah. So four out of ten. Oh, then you got the fire. Ten people in this town. Ten. There's a fire truck. There's a fire truck guy, too. Okay, so 50% of this town is government bureaucracy, or at least on the government payroll or whatever. Kind of hilarious. Yeah, so let's get into a, a category. Um, let's let's do the tears jerked one because I feel like they were trying to pull on so many emotional heartstrings in this movie. Like, I mean, it's a it's a Pixar movie, and that's kind of what they're known for. Uh, they they play this like an instrument, you know. And uh, I just want to say personally, for me, I feel like uh, they were at the jerk store and running out of tears to be jerked. I mean, they they were playing on the you know, you know the the poor town being neglected and, and all these businesses closing, but they were also pulling on um, Owen Wilson's character being mean to people, but then also the Doc Hudson character being this like reluctant, um, you know, very sad character who crashed out when he was uh, a racer. And then they have the whole redemption at the end, which I got to tell you, man, it did make me well up a little bit. So I think that there was a high, high number of tears jerked in this. Not that it's a particularly good movie and not that the emotional elicitations are even legitimate because like they want you to feel bad for these Luddites in this small town who are 
not willing to take initiative and see the writing on the wall, like we were saying before. You know, and the the whole message seems to be this like buy local uh, kind of idea for the nostalgic element. But if you do that, what you're doing is you're buying a lower cost of living because you're paying a higher price for these goods and services, right? So it's it's really kind of a backwards message. Yeah, and I know a lot of people that do like to support local stuff, and that's I mean perfectly fine. You you have your 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 preferences and you service those preferences because that's what you want to see in the world. You want to see you want to have the convenience of having these little local shops, and you want to yeah, have the different character. You pay the price for that. These, yeah, but you pay a price. You pay a premium price for it for sure. But to say that yeah that these these places are being neglected and then that's something to be sad about. Well, I'm sorry. You're not going to, you're falling on deaf ears here, sir. (laughs) I know too much about economics and I know about the unseen. And the fact that those things are being left behind means that people are preferring other things. They find other things more valuable. So yeah, you're you're not, I, I shed zero tears when it was, you know, trying to play the violin for the little town. Um, the only time that I did kind of well up was at the very, very end when McQueen makes the big switch and he, you know, sees all his friends and, you know, he makes those human connections because it does, he does start out as a jerk with zero friends. At, at one point in the very beginning, you know, his agent who doesn't care about him at all or whatever, it's just a, you know, pers- professional relationship, gives him 20 tickets to give away and he can't think of a single friend that he would give his tickets to. So he's like this, you know, he's a successful guy, but he's all about being a professional racer. And he hasn't, you know, taken the time to, you know, establish any kind of, you know, human connections. He doesn't even like his sponsors, who are kind of these yokely people. And then, you know, he turns out to really end up enjoying the relationships with these yokely people. And and I guess the message of that movie is, you know, there is value in those relationships. Of course there is. but you know, I guess this is a kids' movie, so I guess you know you, know, you can make you can find friends in unexpected places. I guess that's a good message for a child. But please don't take it to heart that you got to support you know places that are covered in rust and falling apart and whatever. They're falling apart. I mean, if you find value in you know rusty things and fixing them up or seeing beauty and that kind of thing, great. But don't feel like it's any kind of huge tragedy that people prefer a better service or a better thing they found more value in other things that's people following their own preference so yeah um i don't know about tears jerked i'd say like a like a two or a three really yeah, that low just just yeah and that's just for the end scene yeah the I'm like a, it was nothing i'm like an eight man and and that's weird because you're usually the, the more emotional of the two of us but uh during the the last race you know when his friends show up i mean that's that's kind of cool but then when doc hudson shows up and he's like in his racing colors I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, that's pretty awesome. And then when the king crashes on the final lap and then McQueen goes back to uh, he forgoes winning the race and he goes back to get the uh, the, right. the king and pushes him sure. across the end. I mean, that's that's some tear jerking material right there. I, I completely agree with you. That's the one scene where I welled up for sure. Uh, but, you know, I guess maybe I'm judging this movie a little bit differently than you are. I mean, it takes more than one good emotional scene for me to call it, you know, you know, a uh, positive in numbers of tears jerked. I, now, I, I do want to ask you uh, earlier during the, the first race that ends up in a tie because he's a jackass and blows his tires. But there's a three way tie. The Costas and uh, Daryl Waltrip, I think that's the guy's name, uh, their calling of the race that was like super good. I mean, it like 
it elicited emotion in me, even though it's like this totally staged like cartoon movie. But Costas just has that way of conveying a, a sporting event to where it just really gets you going, you know? He's, he's like a master at that stuff. I, I Yeah, I, I thought it was really good. I mean, my the version I watched was pitched down a little bit, so his voice is a little bit off. But, I, you know, of course, it was Costas. I didn't recognize the other guy. I assumed the other guy was a real, like, NASCAR kind of commentator dude. Um, and I thought it was weird that Costas was there because, you know, I don't think he normally does NASCAR. But I, I agree with you. He is a master and is really good at um, getting the attention and interest and, you know, emotional involvement in uh, – in, uh, in, in the audience. All right. So what's our, uh, what's another category that we do other than tears jerk? So you're like a two and I'm like an eight. Well, what other, what other scenes were emotional for you? If you're giving it an eight, can't be well, just that one last scene. Well, it's the initial, you know, Costa stuff. It gets you fired up. You know, the three-way race. It's like super exciting. You were in tears. Not in, in tears, but scene. I did feel that excitement, right? Even though I've seen the movie before. And then uh, the, the whole final race, uh, though, you know, the, the, I will say that the making you feel bad about <laughs> the poor economics of the town and the love story between the two um, leads there, you know, the Carrera and Landy McQueen, I didn't really feel too much on that regard. Yeah, I mean, so, I liked it. I liked it, but it didn't, it didn't really tug my heartstrings. Yeah, so you, you might be dragging me down just a little bit here. Maybe it's a little well, you high. Can, you can like it however much you want, but, I mean, Giuseppe stocked snow tires. Yeah, not, in the not, desert. The best, not the best entrepreneur there. <laughs> in a dead town with an employee. He's got snow tires. Okay. Econ 101, anyone? Business school? Just a little bit? I don't know. Just a thought. No, that's a, that's a good thought, you know, and, and I'll give them credit for, you know, trying to play the emotional heartstrings, uh, however misguided their economics. But Fair enough. Um, one, one thing that bugged me though, just a little bit in the, in the last scene where, uh, the Hudson Hornet is the, is the, like the crew chief and he's got this giant comical set of, uh, like a headset on and he's talking to like Moon McQueen and I get it. I know why he's got this giant comical headset on because he's the crew chief and that's what they wear in NASCAR. But he's talking to Lightning McQueen. Lightning McQueen doesn't have a giant comical headset, and he can hear him just fine and talk back to him. So clearly, clearly this giant headset is not necessary. So I like to think of it as him just wearing this giant prop just for funsies. It makes the scene way better for me. Oh, I, that didn't bother me too much. I mean, they're, they're trying to make it as, uh, you know, have the little cues in there to, to make it make sense. But even in you know real race, racing, they they have the the speaker in their their headset inside their helmet, and there's really no helmet on these cars. Right, which is why it it was ridiculous. Yeah. Oh, you know, I wanted to to ask you about the eyes, the eye placement. Does it bother you at all? Uh, I I read that there was some controversy because most people, I guess, at the time thought that the eyes should be the headlight because that's generally how things go in this um this very leftist leaning uh, Gawker media site. Jalopnik apparently had a uh, a big issue with this and wrote an article about it saying how dumb it was that the eyes were in the windshield. Well, that's ridiculous. I mean, everything Gawker publishes is really dumb, but not to, not to paint with too broad a brush there, but prove me wrong. Come at me, bro. <laughs> show me one thing on Gawker that's not really stupid. And they show, they pump out tons of content. But anyway, um, I mean, there's a history with like uh, older Disney movies or like the the brave toaster and those kind of things where the headlights are the the, the eyeballs for cars um but 
if you are animating a character, your job, your number one job, is to create an emotional connection to the audience. And the best way to do that is with a highly expressive character. And the best way to do that with cars is to use a very large area to have the eyeballs, because the eyeballs are probably the most expressive thing you can do, especially with, you know, you're dealing with inanimate objects that don't have, you know, can't crinkle their foreheads and that kind of stuff. I mean, they can use their mouths, and the mouths are kind of ridiculous in this movie, but I give it all a pass because, yeah, you want to create an emotional bond with the characters, and you need to be able to identify and see them expressing emotion. And what better way to do that than to use as much area as possible? Yeah, I would agree with that. And it almost reminded me of, like, um, Japanese animation. Like, anime style, they always have the, the really large eyes, or at least that's, like, my perception of it. Yeah, yeah. They, they, there's a reason why exactly why Japanese anime vastly over-exaggerates their eyeballs. And it's, it's kind of funny. It's led to the perception that large eyes are very attractive in Japan. So they get, you know, cosmetic surgery to widen the eyeballs. But, you know, it's all good. Yeah, but, but it is because of the expressiveness in the animation, right? They're trying to convey a story, and so now it's, like, seeped into the culture. Because, I mean, this is going to sound, you know, totally awkward, but generally speaking, Asians have, like, more slanted eye, right? Like a narrower eye or, or more horizontal. And so now... How dare be- you point out actual physical things that exist? You I know, and I'm trying to be very careful in describing it. Um <laughs> But because of the animators wanting to expressively tell a story, they made the eyes bigger. And so now that's causing people in the population to think that that's like a desirable thing, which is kind of interesting. I don't know. Yeah, it's a life imitating art. But that's always been the case with animation. I mean, if you go back all the way back to, you know, Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny and those characters were always had giant eyeballs because you wanted to, uh, you know, express emotion. And connect with the audience. Yeah. Now, maybe you understand if there's a distinction between them, but why is it that, you know, Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck and all of them did have large eyes, Bugs Bunny, but why does it stand out, at least to me, that anime, Japanese anime is like somehow different, like they're bigger or more expressive? Well, yeah, they have, well, they're using human faces where, yeah, they're, I don't know, it's a very cultural thing with them. I don't know. I I, I can't really explain it other than it's always been that way. Um, I think even if you go back to the old Japanese woodblock block prints, it's not as exaggerated. But um, I don't know. If you get into anime, there are all kinds of different like tropes with ways to express different emotions and feelings, and it's always super exaggerated. Like when someone's angry, they'll show them, you know, with like super red face and like steam coming off their foreheads, and you know, it's just taken dialed up to eleven, you know, Spinal Tap style. It's just to, to quickly, you know, and expressively show this, this emotion. It's just that there's no, you know, that there's no uh, uh, misunderstanding with it, I guess you could say. Because, you know, artists aren't always perfect. It's, it takes a master, a super master, to be able to express, you know, perfect human emotion with just a 2D drawing, you know, in one panel and have it be perfectly understood by the reader. I mean, that's just, you know, some next-level shit. So it, it would make sense to me that, you know, the average anime artist who is still super talented but, you know, maybe isn't the most perfect thing would develop a, a quick, easy kind of a, a method of expressing an emotion that doesn't require you to be the most perfect artist of all time. 
Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, like water flows downhill. You know, why why not use something that's an easy, quick way to do it if it works? Yeah. And plus, yeah, you got to draw so much. I mean, those guys are just chained to their desks, drawing constantly. It's uh, they got to pump out a lot of content, man. The Japanese uh, manga market and anime market is massive and employs tons of people. In fact, there's actually there are Gawker articles, of course, opining about the low rate of pay among manga artists and um, anime artists. It's actually you know slightly above like minimum wage, and they you know complain about the working conditions and the long hours. And I'm like, well. Clearly, I mean the the rate the wages are low because there's a ton of supply of labor and they're willing to work in those conditions. I, I don't know what to tell you, but you know they they think that you know unionizing and blah 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 you know fighting and using violence to to demand and get laws passed for better conditions and higher pay is is, is the way to go. Yeah, you, more of the seen and unseen. They certainly don't have a problem with violence, whether they comprehend that that's what it is or not. Uh, speaking of, I want to take this back to, to cars, uh, shifting gears on you. Ha ha. Ha <laughs> ha. So we had mentioned that the highway got built and it uh, allowed a lot of people to just bypass this town and, and the, the town suffered as a result. Um, but, you know, highways, at least in, in this country, in present day, are handled by the government. And so I'm wondering if, if you give them a bit of a pass as if they are uh, victims of poor decision-making by the government because they chose to move the road, you know, far enough out of the way or, or whatever, because, you know, they're not making decisions based on a market, right? They're making bureaucratic decisions on, you know, lowest cost or quickest whatever um, without taking a lot of the human element um, into it or really any market-based mechanisms. And, and the whole highway system as developed by Eisenhower and then, you know, predecessors uh, that were sort of the nascent beginnings of this. And Route 66 was part of the initial um, uh, uh, drive to have a, uh, I'm using all sorts of puns, man, Jesus, crazy, uh, to, to get a cross-country route because uh, it went to, from Chicago down to Los Angeles or down to Santa Monica. But I'm just curious if, if you see that as a, um, a potential miscue on government, thus distorting what happens to these people or these cars in this town. Because um, there's a, a kid's book called the Tuttle Twins series, and, and one of theirs is The Road to Serfdom, which is about um, the government building a new road that uh, causes this popular beach to uh, be bypassed, and now this other beach is getting all the business. And it's just about how the distortions of these arbitrary decisions made by government affects the, um, you know, the unintended consequences upon people that are impacted by these things. So any, any comments on that? Oh, I've got comments, Daniel. Um, it's well known among, you know, libertarians and ANCAPs and whatever, and if you really understand government, um, government absolutely picks winners and losers. Uh, government kind of bends to the will of the loudest or the most generous donors. Oftentimes, you know, corporations will write their own legislation and they'll have a couple senators in their pocket who push it through, and then they pass it without even reading it. You know the story. So I do have a ton of sympathy for the entrepreneur who gets crushed and squashed by these arbitrary government decisions. Well, not necessarily arbitrary, but you know, bought and paid for government decisions most of the time. Or even when there is, they do have good intentions, quote, good intentions. Um, we did a movie with um, Walter Block, um, what is the name of that movie? It's all Poverty, about um, Poverty Inc. 
Poverty Inc., right, is all about the um, the plight of the entrepreneur in the face of, um, what is it, you know, with, like, charity and, like, G, not GMOs, what's NGOs, sorry, NGOs and that sort of thing. And, you know, it's, it's a very nuanced movie, and it got some things right, and it got a lot of things wrong. But one thing that did, you know, kind of tug on my heartstrings in that movie is the plight of the entrepreneur and how difficult it is for an entrepreneur to even even turn a profit in today's day and age with all the regulations and just how hard it is even to succeed, even without, you know, just with competition. And that's the way it should be. But the majority, the vast majority of businesses that start fail. And um, that's the market choosing, you know, what it desires the most, finds the most value in. Um, but it can, you know, you could have a great idea and you can have the best business model in the world and it could be, and you could just get crushed through no fault of your own. And it does breed a better entrepreneur. You need to be more aware, hyper aware of all the possible pitfalls and dangers and all the horrific things that can happen to you as a business owner. And one of the biggest ones, if not the biggest one, of course, is government. I mean, I would love it if it was, you know, get rid of government and just have massive open competition. And at least then you would, you know, your business would fail and go, well, I got outcompeted. Someone just did it better than me. At least then it would be fair in that sense, as opposed to what you're describing with these arbitrary or bought and paid for, you know, crony government decisions where you just get crushed, even though you had a great idea. Now, I'm going to argue with you about whether or not these people had a really great idea. I mean, snow tires in the desert. <clears throat> but, well, well but, <laughs> but um, you know, maybe at one point, you know, when they first bought in, you know, they had a thriving, booming business. And But still, I mean, I, I'm not going to shed any tears for these guys after two years or whatever the timeline is. You know, they said in years. So it's, it's been a while that they haven't packed up and moved out because it is only the, like I said, the improbable series of events that they befriended this world-famous racer car who then decides to put his headquarters in this little town that, that revitalizes it. Um, it would be fun. I don't know. I, I'm sure there's sequels to these movies, right? There's Cars 2 and 3. I don't yes. know if they all take place in Radiator Springs or, you know, whatever, if it becomes a thriving, bustling metropolis or they just move on to a new town. I don't know what the, the storylines are in those movies. It's funny you it ask. I, I, I happen to know. <laughs> Do you? Okay, well, I'd be interested to see because I would assume – I mean, I would imagine that, you know, geography is going to win out. I mean, you can, you can have an attraction that will draw people to your town like a – I mean, the one thing that springs to mind would be like a uh, – what's the, what's the name of that little town where the alien – Oh, Roswell? Roswell. Yeah. So I, I can't imagine that Roswell is just some podunk little town. But people come from all over just for that one fact that supposedly a UFO landed there one time. So, you know, if there's nothing really drawing people – out to this Radiator Springs, I can imagine it just dying in, you know, a couple more years or whatever once the hype dies down from his headquarters being there or whatever. Um, but why don't you tell me what happens in the uh, succeeding Cars movies? All right, since we won't do, do these as episodes, um, number two follows uh, Lightning McQueen going on a Grand Prix around the world uh, race, and then um, Mater is, is along for the ride, and he's, of course, embarrassing Lightning all along the way at every turn. And he is... Um, believed to be an undercover spy by these British uh, MI6 types. And they think that, that he just has this brilliant cover of playing this dumb, rusty, you know, American hick. Uh, but then he, you know, accidentally, like, does these things that get him out of danger or 
thwart the uh, the enemy, etc. So that's that's number two. It's uh, heavy on the meter, and it's it's not as, not that great. Number three is back to Lightning McQueen, and he's been very successful for many years. He's been winning a lot of Piston Cups, and he's made friends that are his uh, you know racing um, competitors, but he's also buddy buddy with them. So. He's changed a lot from being in Cars 1, but he's also getting a little long in the tooth, and there's these new upstart competitors that are more scientifically, you know, measured and designed, so they uh, take more advantage of their horsepower and their aerodynamics and uh, their training methods and things like that, and and, uh, Lightning's not able to compete with them very well. Like, he he starts losing to them, and uh, it becomes a uh, transition story where he is now going to refocus on his training to be able to hang with these guys because he thinks he still has some gas left in the tank. Ha, ha, ha. And he doesn't want to go out fifth on... fifth car pun so far. Just, just uh, keeping track. This is like a drinking game. I'd be pretty lit up by now. But go ahead. I know, right? And I didn't even write these things down. Uh, so he he wants to go out on his own terms. He wants to not quit because he's losing. He wants to win and then walk away. So he goes through this training with this uh, coach who is uh, this young um, female yellow car who is you know, very much into the, the technology and the training methods and all of these things. She knows a lot about that kind of stuff, but not a lot about, say, the spirit of racing or the tacit experience and the, um, you know, the wily veteran type stuff that, that he has amassed through actually doing the races. And so he ends up being frustrated by her training methods and trying to show her, no, you know, here's, here's what you would actually do in this kind of a corner or here's how you would actually do this on this kind of track. And uh, they end up doing the final race, and he starts the race, but then uh, has her finish the race for him with his number, and she ends up winning through a combination of him teaching her the spirit of racing and her having the technology, and he then takes the role of the Doc Hudson character and becomes her crew chief. So it's him passing the torch. Sounds like a decent set of trilogy, um, but they never go back to Radiator Springs, or is it never mentioned again? It's mentioned, you know, just in passing. There's not a whole lot of, like, in Radiator Springs, unlike Cars 1, where, you know, 90% of the story is in, in the town. Well, that's unfortunate. I mean, I wouldn't expect, a, a you know, an economic kind of true thing to happen, so I, I could see them not going back to Radiator Springs and showing it be like a bustling metropolis or, or a dead town or anything like that, so... I mean, that kind of thing happened with uh, Las Vegas, right? It was just a patch of desert. And, you know, you, you, you let a little uh, illicit activity go on. <laughs> a little bit of freedom. A little bit of freedom. And, and all of a sudden you get this uh, bustling metropolis tourist destination. Yeah. And mafias. Mafioso. Maybe that, that, was, that was why Guido or Giuseppe, was that? Yeah, Giuseppe had his little shop. <laughs> it was cover for the mob there. Yeah, that's right. But anyway, speak, speaking of the mob, I just want to throw one other thing out at you, and, and it is the uh, interstate highway system. Overall, the initial cost estimate was to be $25 billion over 12 years, and it ended up costing $114 billion uh, in, in the same uh, adjusted inflation dollars and taking 35 years. So nothing like government to take about five times the cost and two and a half times the, uh, the timing that they think they're going to take. Yeah, I mean, any, any government program that fails, they're just like, well, we didn't have enough money. Throw more money at it. That's that's always it's it's failing forward. I mean, if you were in the the private sector, you just would would have gone out of business or you know been taken over by somebody who could have done it efficiently. But right. the government. Yeah. Who who will build the roads indeed? <laughs> 
And uh, you had brought up Walter Block um, earlier. He was our guest on uh, uh, our episode on Poverty, Inc., and people can find that. We'll, we'll post that down below. But he also is uh, a guy who writes a lot on the privatization of roads, and uh, he's a great resource on that. So highly recommend that, that guy and his writings when it comes to answer the question of who will build the roads. Yeah, baby. So we have to wrap this baby up? Yeah, we are about ready to do the final summary and review, so go for it, Robert. Okay, so um, as usual with my kids' movie reviews, I mean, I'll say I would recommend this to a, you know show your kids. I'm not going to call you a terrible parent if you watch this, unlike with Lion King. You can, you can watch this one. Um, there's not nearly as much horrific propaganda or you know, economic fallacies. There's a bunch of series of crazy events and... But you know, for the most part, it's a it's a fun movie. There's likable characters. the the character The main character has an arc. It's got a good message to the movie. You know, um, so it's not it, the like I said with the with the economic issues and the tugging on the heartstrings and that bit. It didn't hit me. But um, overall, for a kids movie, I would say this is like a solid eight. I I, I don't know. You know, I don't have kids of my my own, so I, I can't say if this is like you know their favorite movie or anything like that. But um, I could see this being uh, as popular as it became. I remember walking through, you know, like a Walmart or a Fred Meyer or whatever and just seeing all kinds of cars merchandise all over the place. So I knew kids were, you know, buying it up and it's really popular. And I could see why. It's, uh, you know, Pixar, this is back in the kind of golden age of Pixar when they were just kind of killing it with, you know, Lasseter at the helm doing all the big, the big movies, having a, a large hand in all those movies but like him and Bird. Um, so yeah, this is a, this is a strong movie. I, as an adult movie, it's less good. Um, I liked the end scene a lot, but it is all built up from the rest of the movie. I mean, there's a fair amount of telegraphing what's going to happen in the story. Um, you know, as a, you know, a seasoned movie watcher, but I can't really complain too much about it. This is, this is primo Pixar, not the best Pixar movie. Don't get me wrong. It's not the best, but um, good. It's a solid Pixar movie in, in their kind of heyday time. All right. Well, thank you for that. And I'm very surprised at such a high rating, especially with so few tears jerked. Uh, like I said, you know, the, the jerk store called and they were all out of tears. And I, I had an eight on the, on the tears jerked. I found that uh, there was a whole lot of um, story going on in here, and the characters do change a fair amount, and I, I really enjoyed that. I, I do like watching this one with the kids, and I do get fired up. Owen Wilson is a great, like this was his peak, I think. He was just in Wedding Crashers right before this, and then, and then this came out. Uh, he had been in Zoolander. Uh, so this is like Owen Wilson at, at his prime, the peak of his powers. And uh, uh, very enjoyable characters, a whole lot of merchandise as a result. And I find that, um, uh, you know, being the Route 66 thing, I'm going to go with an overall rating of 6.6. .6. And, you know, just, just to throw, uh, not even a pun, but, you know, just make it like the road. So 6.6 .6 for me. And I, I also wanted to mention that... Um, John Ratzenberger, he's been in all of the Pixar movies, at least up to this point in uh, 2006. He was at least some, some character all the way from Toy Story into uh, Cars. And at the end of Cars, in the credits, they actually have um, versions of Toy Story, Monsters, Inc., and something else. Um, Bugs Life. Bugs Life, uh, played as Cars. And, and um, the Ratzenberger character in Cars is watching. He goes, what is this? They're just using the same guy in all of these movies. What kind of cut rate production is this? And that totally reminded me of that uh, that sign for some 
cut rate auto parts that we found um, behind my house one one year, like when we were kids. I always thought like that's like the worst name for your product, right? Like cut rate auto parts, like piece of shit auto parts, you know? <laughs> well, the best part about it is that, it, you know, the acronym is CRAP and it was Brad's CRAP. It was Brad's cut rate auto parts. And I had that sign on my like peachy, not peachy, but um, like my binder in school for oh, at least four years, maybe more than that, probably through college, probably had that on there until that thing finally fell off and died. But yeah, that, that thing's classic, man. Yeah, still crap auto parts. I, I might still have, it might still be somewhere. It might still be in my possession somewhere. I don't know where it is, but yeah, it's a good sign. Yeah, super good sign and super good night from me. So I'm going to say last night or good night from last night. This will be found at lastnighters.com slash nine. And we'll play a little outro music after Robert says good night. It's been an honor and a white male privilege talking to you good people, you good, beautiful, handsome, sexy people tonight. I'm glad I did the show. Glad you listened to it. You guys have a good night.